Hello and welcome to Hellies for Hyphenates for August 2012. I am writer-critic-the-born-advocacy, hyphen hyphen advocacy Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, guys. I'm uh, writer-director-soulless-remake, hyphen, hyphen, uh, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our very special guest. <laughs> Sorry, I'm now laughing. I'm writer-film-critic-wannabe-screenwriter-hyphen... Host of Friday My Mind, presenter lady, Alice Tynan. Welcome. welcome thank welcome. you, thank you. We've got you laughing already, that's a yes. good sign. Yes. <laughs> Wait till you hear our opinions on this. Okay, okay. Most people, hilarious. Yeah. Now, yes, I did kind of flag with the born advocacy thing that I'm in that, I want to say minority, I'll go with me, uh, group of people who actually liked... Oh no, Mimi! Mimi! Yes! We go. I'm, I'm, we've I'm, doubled. Yes, we've. Hey, we can get decoder rings, and no, we don't need it just for the two of us. No. I, I did like it. I Look, I mean, I think, not to spoil anything, but I think the climax is like totally overblown and underdone, and mm. how can you be overblown and underdone? <laughs> I don't even know. But you're exactly right. But I was just like, what is going on? I'm a little bit bored, and there's this super guy, and I don't even really care. But other than that, I kind of dug it. It's weird. I don't disagree with okay. anything you just said. But I didn't like it, uh, <laughs> except for that bit. I just found that the film, if it wasn't a Bourne sequel, I feel like any studio head would get 20 pages in that screenplay and throw it out the room. That's like, interesting. The entire first half hour of the film is a man walking, a man we don't know walking through snow. It's terse. Well, he has his spy who came in from the cold moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that is true. Yeah. Very cold, Boom very tish. Alaskan. <laughs> and, you know, they're all chase movies, so that's fine. I, I don't mind that so much. But I just found it really, really alienating and kind of perfunctory and not um, not very involving um, outside of the actors. I just I just felt the writing was na- making no attempt to draw us into the world and just kind of assumed, well, you like those three Bourne movies, so this one's like those, but with less action and the character stuff's not nearly as good. I like the fact that it was set during the third film. Yeah. I think they've done some a lot of brilliant things. What happens when you lose your lead and you want to tie it into the universe? You have it taking place simultaneously to the third film, which is a brilliant oh, idea. Oh, is that what was happening? Yeah. It's that simultaneous. Was the whole point. That's, it's that's simultaneous. why I don't get that at all. Okay. Oh, see, that's, that's why we're on team. That's legacy. why he was mentioned and never picked yeah. up on yeah. again. Because it was. It? Oh, okay. You have to watch the miss that. Okay, I, I can understand you not finding it very accessible. So let, let, let's go to a more accessible crowd, please, uh, of a film. What do you think of Holy Motors? <laughs> Art or lunacy, you decide. <laughs> it's apparently the tagline. I enjoyed it immensely and underst- barely understood it. It's incredibly stylish. There are sequences in this film that are so inspired and enjoyable and full of life and full of love for cinema and really jump out of the screen at you that there's enough to kind of say, look, this is a worthwhile cinema experience. It's a film, I recognise its brilliance, but it did nothing for me. Like, I I just feel completely unaffected by it, Mm -hmm. but still totally acknowledge what he's done and what an amazing film it is. But it just, yeah, it just did not affect me. Yeah, I do. I, I admire this film on a, on a lot of levels, but I, I just can't love it. As part of the series of films that came out this month exploring what happens to limousines at night time, what do you think of <laughs> Cosmopolis? Damn, this is another one I didn't get to. Cosmopolis is undeniably witty. It's got ideas on its mind. It's... Got some lurid elements, but the trailer makes it look like old school Cronenberg. It makes it mm. look like off the hook, 
crash meets naked lunch meets scanners type Cronenberg. It's not that at all. Um. It's it's more it's dangerous method Cronenberg, which is and this is the problem I have. He stopped making films, and I feel like he started making stage plays. Dangerous Method and Cosmopolis are both films that are fine. I don't have huge problems with either of them. Is that just you reacting to the austerity of it, or oh, it's, it just feels like it's people talking at each other for ninety minutes and not in a and in a very stagey way. Like people have huge preachy speeches about things, and it just seems extremely theatrical to the point where it, it's it feels like film is the wrong medium for this. Well, if Holy Motors is, like, a great film that I didn't like, Cosmopolis is a bad film I loved. <laughs> like, that's... And that's... I'm, like, I'm being facetious, obviously, if I loved it. I don't think it's a bad film, but I just... You know, I'm trying to get myself out of movie critic jail here. Um, I... Look... I really like it. I, I, I really like the affected manner it takes. Like, the speech is so... It's almost like the next level beyond, you know, Sorkin or Mamet or, you know... it. it it's almost Shakespearean in its in its construct that they've taken Zorkin, this. Zorkin, Mamet, Shakespeare. Oh yeah. Nice. Do you think they're that well written though? Uh, no, no, no. It doesn't. In, I'm, in I'm concept, not even. Yes, in execution, there not so much. No, I think it's deliberate, and that that's the key. I I, I don't think it's bad dialogue. I think it's affected deliberate dialogue. But yeah, I I like this film despite myself. <laughs> Sounds like I should so, take a chance. So why do you say despite yourself though? Like why? Because uh, I kind of see why why people don't like it. It's like I'm in a bad relationship, but with a film. Kind of like no, baby, it still loves me. I swear. I do appreciate it's like this sort of witty little look at how like at a at a capitalist system that mm. is beginning to crumble under its own weight. Mm. It does have very affected uh, dialogue, and it's almost bad that it came out the same month as The King of affected mannered dialogue and that's Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom I'm talking about <laughs> it feels like he's, he's, he's shifted himself slightly out of his comfort zone not a, not a lot but just far enough for it to be in slightly new direction for him yeah it's a good it's a good gateway drug for mm. Anderson I think I just found it a, a pure delight like it simultaneously made me want to join the scouts and run away from them like it just yeah, yeah. so one of those things it does it takes you back to being 12 and being good friends with people and having your first love and I don't know just but everything I don't I didn't see him breaking out of his comfort zone as far as like stylistically like oh my gosh the symmetrical mm-hmm. framing and the colors and the costumes and even the cameos it just everything is Wes Anderson to, to be film. fair the, the font of the opening credits is a different <laughs> yellow though isn't it it's, 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 it's a, a different, different font, font but it's yellow it's still yellow so. uh, give him time yeah it's a perfect metaphor for the film but i actually had a little bit of trouble with the kids i think they're, they're asked to do a lot and they're asked to do a lot with that affected wry rapid fire dialogue and i thought the girl Susie, i thought she was probably a little bit better than sam but i mean he's asked he asks a lot of them and i'm not sure it always succeeds I don't know, but then because then you cut to, you know, Francis McDormand and Bill Murray being unhappily married and they're like the best unhappily married couple ever. Yeah. And you've got, you know, Edward Norton, you've got Bruce Willis, um, you have some cameos which won't spoil, but I don't know, I just felt like you've got a huge story resting on really young shoulders. And yes, it's a super simple story and I love the kind of Lord of the Flies element of the Scouts and but just 
when, yeah, how do you get those kids acting Wes Anderson-y? And first-time actors too. I know, amazing. Amazing that debuts. Was... I mean, don't, yeah, I won't take that away from them. I'm one of those people who's kind of fell out of touch with Wes Anderson for a few years. Circa I, when? What was I your breaking Rush point? I loved Rushmore and Morms okay. and then... Bottle Rocket? Early, oh, the no, I've never seen Bottle <gasps> See, Bottle Rocket. And I, Life Aquatic began to grate on me and then okay. Darjeeling kind of hammered at home and I was like... You're Fantastic making... Mr. Fox didn't win you back? Well, it did. That's the thing. That's ah, what I'm getting to. okay. But even so, Fantastic Mr. Fox was more the style and the um, loveliness of the whole enterprise kind of excited me, even though it, he was still telling the same story. And this is where I agree with Lee that he's changed tack a little bit mm-hmm. because his films from Tenenbaums to Fantastic Mr. Fox were all about gifted children living under the shadow of giant parents. Parents that were all kind of, you know, carried a massive reputation around with them. And even though we've got gifted kids running away, they're not necessarily... Like, their parents are just regular, you know, the regular attorneys. They're not, you know, they're not great novelists. They're not people who define a town. They certainly not- run a household, though. Like, it's certainly... There's there's a weight to them and there's, you know, there's a weight to needing to run away from them. Yeah. I, always, I guess I've just always felt that, you know, one's a great... You know, in, in the previous films, they're always acknowledged as great people by mm. many, many people. Like, you know, like Royal Tenenbaum is this kind of amazing figure and legendary kind of thing. And Steve Zissou is a, you know, legendary explorer. And and so I think he's changed tack in that regard. And it didn't feel like the same story, even though it was very much the same style. Although I think he's refined his style to a point too. I think this is the best. I think this is the most stylish Wes Anderson uh, film Wes Anderson's made. I think made. Fantastic Mr. Fox made that, – that was just such a perfect playground for him because he could literally manipulate every single little tiny element of these little claymation yeah. guys. And so I think perhaps he just learnt from that and was able to bring that back to live action. Absolutely. And I just thought it's the Wes Anderson film I've liked the most since Tenenbaums and maybe even Rushmore. Um I just thought it was gorgeous. Someone alerted me to this, and it was a really good point, that it was, it's very, has an interesting view of masculinity as well. It's mm. kind of all these guys in these authority positions, mm. um, like yeah, a lawyer, a cop, and a scoutmaster, and none of them are in control of their own worlds. And it's, and it's because they're all kind of sweet at their core, and it's at a time when masculinity and sweetness weren't necessarily, like sweetness wasn't a valued quantity in a, mm. in a masculine person in the mm. 50s. I thought that was a really interesting little kind of sidebar. Well, there's some good news about the new Total Recall film. Oh, gosh. And that really? is that, look, I know a lot of people worried, but it stays faithful to the original in the sense that it's awful. Um, <laughs> no, look, I'll amend that. I, I don't think it's bad because I think it's too boring to be bad. I think, I think bad is like, we attempted something and failed completely. It's like, no, you didn't even attempt something. You were just kind of... You just threw some stuff at the screen and I they just... They just threw a shitload of money at the screen and just watched it, like, slide down. And I don't even know what happened. I would like prefer gold. bad to boring. I would rather have seen a bad film that engaged me for 90 minutes. So I will see your boring not bad and raise you a boring and bad. <laughs> and I will concede the point. <laughs> um, I, I want like my two g- hours back. I want to recall yes. my own brain and, like, <laughs> just... Wipe get, it. Wipe yeah, it. Let's lobotomize me. I want someone to forget it for me wholesale. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
<laughs> it's like I just find Len Weisman is the most hacky, uninspired blockbuster director. I mean, he just appropriates whatever visual flourish is popular so in this at case, the time. Uh, Star Wars, Phantom Menace, and lens flares. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, JJ Abrams. Oh my goodness. Action scenes are so perfunctorily directed. It's yes. so leaden. I, I, I mean, look. No, but there were lens flares, so, you know. Yeah, that, with no that... light source, so yes. that's good. I mean, and we've seen Colin Farrell be great in bad movies. Like, here he doesn't register at all. Yeah. It's he like, forgot to bring to any do. personality. I mean, no. I know, like, actually acting up against Arnie has got to be pretty hard because the dude doesn't have any personality, but somehow... I don't know, maybe Colin Farrell got himself lobotomised before this film as well. Yeah, it's, it's called doing a film with Len Wiseman. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the new lobotomy. But, <laughs> Same as watching a film by Len Wiseman. But let's end on a more positive note. The Sapphires. <gasps> Yay! And sure, it may be clunky at times, and sure, there are a few lines that fall flat, but God, it's fun. And God, the music is great, and the jokes that work really work. And God, it looks good. It like, hello, Warwick Thornton. Was that not a stroke of genius getting him to be the cinematographer? Like, Big props to him for that. Amazing. And, you know, Chris O'Dowd walks away with the film and it's just fun. I yes. just had so much fun with it. I haven't seen it for, what, a couple of months and I still have a smile on my face just thinking yeah. about it. Like, it, wow. the, I've got the soundtrack and I listen to it and it's fantastic and just the, I think, I love the way that they individuate all the women, so you do, I mean, they are a group, but they are, they are kind of types, right? You get their personalities really clearly. But yeah, you yeah. get their personalities. Deb Mailman is fantastic. And we haven't even mentioned the best thing about the film, which is that it's not Total Recall. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not directed by Lynn Weissman. It deserves props for that. In this middle segment here, we're going to look at uh, how much does your mood uh, going into a film affect it, affect how you process the film that you're seeing. Um, because I saw the media screening of Total Recall the day after the Melbourne International Film Festival ended, and I'd seen 57 films in 17 days, and there was such you know such a variety and diversity of, of interesting stuff that when you're faced with a remake as soulless and utilitarian as Total Recall I, I kind of I, I went into it with a little bit of hope but in the end within about 10 minutes I realised that hope wasn't going to be rewarded and I quickly became bored and a first for me in a media screening I went to sleep <laughs> now is that because of myth fatigue and the you know the riches of film on offer or is it because Total Recall was just extremely fucking bad little from column A little from column B yeah. right <laughs> it's not if it had been a really good film that you'd fallen asleep in and hated the experience of that might be a little a easier bit to more delineate telling. yeah, yeah. Um, and, it's a blurred line and I have to point to the biggest example for me that has ever happened was the first time I saw Brokeback Mountain okay a film I hated I was so frustrated it would never end it was ponderous it was worthless I was so angry then I started reading reviews of it and the reviews described a film that sounded like one I would love I started thinking well why didn't I see that film what are other people seeing that I'm not I started thinking back to that day and I had to go to work immediately after the film and I was worried about my parking running out and these things were creating an agitation in my head that was completely affecting my viewing of the film so I went back and I saw it again and I saw it in the evening when I had nothing to do afterwards and I was settled in and what followed was one of my favourite films of that year and I absolutely adored it and I realised just how much my mood could affect my viewing of a film and that kind of scared me a bit. 
I mean, it excited me, but, but it also scared me. Like, how many films have I hated that are actually brilliant? See, that's, that's really interesting because that goes to a question that I had, which is can your mood poison the well of a film? Like, could if you hated it so much the first time, do you, is that it? You can't see it again. You, know, you can without only hating see it, it through that prism. You can only see yeah. it through that. So it's great that you were able to break that mm. and kind of come and mm. rediscover a film. And I think that's what you would hope for. Mm. But I guess I'm – I mean, I would say absolutely – my mood would affect the film, you know, my interpretation of a film or my acknowledgement of a film or admiration for it. But I also think I'm really quite aware of that. I don't know whether it's because um, I studied in history and it's always context is key and they always say mm. study the historian before you study the facts. Mm. And so I'm always really quite aware and quite reflexive going into a film. I'm like, am I, am I angry? Am I tired? What's going on? And I will actually avoid films if I know that I'm just, that's it, I can't yep. do it. And I think that's what happened with me and Holy Motors. I think there was, there was a screening on, it was early in the morning. And for whatever reason, I just, I just wasn't in the mood. I just wasn't going to work for me. And I, I pulled out, I hit the eject button beforehand because I didn't want right. to spoil it. Mm. So I think maybe I'm, I'm perhaps even over aware of my mood going into a film. Which is probably a good thing. I mean, it, it is good if you can recognize that beforehand and not ruin a, a film experience for yourself. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes a particularly good film can pull you out of that movie. This is as well. also true. That's sometimes true. something's really surprising and it just I mean I was a little bit like that again referring to Miff. Mm. I seeing so many films I did hit a point where I was feeling a bit fatigued and I'd seen some stuff that was disappointing and stuff that just took took up too much time in my day. And I was sort of feeling a bit oh maybe I should take the next day off and then I went to see Bully and that just broke me in two and then after that I was revitalized. I was like this is what I come to, and experiences like this are why I come to a film festival. I got it back, and then for the rest of the film festival, it's fine. Okay. So well, it, so that's festival mm. fatigue. What about the other, the flip side of that, which I might not be too uh, popular for suggesting, but what about when you're in the festival bubble and everything's kind of awesome because you're in the festival mm. and it's amazing and it, you, I don't know, I was, I was talking to friends about it, and it's a little bit of a try-hard factor, like you really want to like everything, so you almost give it too much credit because it's in the festival and, and you're in this happy place and you're at your mecca and yep. everything's fantastic. And whereas some people will just be like, what the hell you're talking about some crazy greek film about people who are dead and and you're saying that's the best thing since sliced bread it's like well is it or is it because i was in my festival bubble i i I hear the festival bubble thing i actually think it's different in that you you feel more free to dislike a film because you're seeing six that day Ah, and it's all right if if the fourth one sucks because you've got another one to go on to i do think that there is a a i think the flip side of that is that you if you're in a good mood that will affect the viewing of a film and in news that may delight Paul or may not, I am almost certain that if I'd been in a bad mood when I watched Certified Copy, my favourite film of last year and one that he absolutely hates, I would have hated it. I'm not sure I would have been able to come back to it. It would have poisoned the well. It would have poisoned the well, exactly. Mm-hmm. And But I, I was in the right mood for it and I was receptive to it and I had an experience that I might not have had if I was in a different mood. Mm. Uh, and I was very, I was very conscious of that. Most of the times I've walked out of a film have been because it's really good. A couple of times during... Hang on, so you walk out of a film? Because it's really good. Very rarely. I can think of two instances, both at film festivals, where I've been exhausted and agitated and watching a film, whether I'm 10 minutes into it or 20 minutes in, I realise that it's fantastic, but I'm not enjoying it a bit and I realise that... Oh, so you hit eject button. I've walked out of films because they're good. 
Ah, and, I, yeah. and I'm not enjoying them. Power to you. It, ha- it doesn't happen much, but it's happened a couple of times. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That happened to me, but I did it before I even went in. It was with Amore. I wanted to see the Hanukkah film. And then I just went, do you know what? It's 9.30 on a Saturday. I've been, you know, back-to-back films and I've got to get up and do mm. something the next day. I think I had to do the law talk. This is at Sydney Film Festival mm. um, with Kate Shortland. So I had to be on my game and I just went, nah not going to go there because I know that I want to give it my full time. So yep. I think that my mood will affect the films that I want to watch like, mm. and, and what I'll seek out. The Poison the Well thing is really interesting because I think you've got to, it is, is, uh, there's a lot of films I feel ready to reapproach, and then others that's just like, no, I had such a horrible experience with the film. And I think over time, though, I, I can begin to divorce retroactively my mood from the film. Mm-hmm. Like I can look at things objectively enough with time to sort of say, well, you know what, I don't think that I don't think I was ready mm. for that film to hit me in the right place and now I'm kind of feel like I'm ready to come back to it. I think this kind of answers the total recall question for me because I have no desire whatsoever to see the whole thing through again. Yeah, fatigue notwithstanding, don't yeah. even want to go there. No. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> Whereas other films I might sort of, you know, nod off a little during or whatever or feel a bit bored by I'm kind of like I, you know, I could take another shot at that when I'm feeling, you know, awake and fitter and and more interested. Alice, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hellas for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month. I have chosen Steven Soderbergh. Whoa. No, Whoa. Lee is very happy about this. But we get asked a lot who would we pick if we were a guest on Hyphenates and... I would probably go with Soderbergh. Huzzah! My favourite working director. I'm so like thank the you. teacher's pet. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Okay, good. So this will be a great chat. So what do, why do you love him? I'm sure we'll get to a lot of that as we go on, but why did you choose him? I love that he loves cinema. Like he obviously is steeped in it and I love that he wants to show you the mechanics of cinema and I love that he can beat Hollywood at its own game but then he can go super indie and super crazy and just whatever, I'm just going to make a film and I'm just going to do it. I love that he kind of learns in the making. He seems to really throw himself into projects and he pulls them together really quickly. Um, And he just, yeah, he just is such a great filmmaker and so eclectic and kinetic. And he just, I think maybe because of his background in editing, he can break down the formal elements. He's obviously so interested in the form of cinema. And so, yeah, I don't know. I've said like about 50 things that I love about him. And I even love that he's taken on history. My history nerd brain (laughs) adores the fact that he went off and made Che and even Aaron Brockovich. Anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) I love him. So uh, you were saying before we get the point that out of sight with your gateway drug. It was. Okay. This was, this was my thing. I remember, what was it? Back in, give me the date. 1998? 1998, yeah. I would have watched uh, Out of Sight and I just went, what is this? Who is this person? This is great. That was the film that made me sit up and take notice and then I kind of went backwards and saw Sex, Lies and Videotape and just went, right, okay, this is someone I'm going to keep my eye on. And then ever, ever since then, when a Soderbergh films come up, I've been like, huh, interesting. And then as I became a film critic, then I became much more, much more interested in him. Well, his first, his first film was uh, short in 1987 called Winston. It's a really fun and, and interesting film. It really sort of showcases the style that he would later develop. Can we, can we post a link to it on the, on the website? Uh, yes, we can. Yeah, we we saw it on, on YouTube. Because yeah, yeah. Yeah. it was incredibly hard to find. Um, so, yeah, let's, yeah. let's help people let's out. Let's help people it. watch it. We can only you... assume it's legally put up there. But, yes, he's, his, first, uh, his first short, and it's really interesting to see that voice established 
immediately. Like, even though it takes him a while to find his feet through his career, you can see what he would later become in that short. Yeah, I love the kind of the neurosis of it. I mean, it it's obviously what the precursor to sex lies and videotape in a way, like looking at relationships, obsessing about things and then things not necessarily turning out the way you think they're going to be. And mm. people being in denial about what they really are. Yes. Mm. I also came to Soderbergh quite late and it was a real shock to discover that this guy that I was now following in, in the late 90s had been the guy behind the cultural zeitgeist that was Sex, Lies and Videotape. That oh, was, so you discovered him, you went backwards as well. I went backwards as well, because mm. like, as an eight-year-old, I was not watching Sex, Lies and Videotape. Nor I. <laughs> but I was aware of it, and mm. everyone was aware of it. Well, this and, is the film that really changed, it really broke the mould, right? It was the film that was the indie film that was the crossover to the mainstream hit, right? Yeah. Mm. So it, it changed or it defined what American independent cinema was. Well, certainly redefined it. Or redefined, yeah. yeah. And the phrase Sex, Lies and Videotape entered the lexicon as well. Yeah. It was a huge cultural mm. moment. How do you follow that up? <laughs> Kafka. Yeah, <laughs> of course Wells. you go to Kafka. <laughs> yeah, Orson Welles, right? Um, it's, it's a terrific film. Uh, mm. It still holds up really wonderfully. Holds up. I mean, it's very much, again, it, it, it's very stagey in a lot of ways, mm. but there are some nice subtle cinematic flourishes to it as well. Um, it, it relies a lot on 80s materialism, but if you took that script and made it today, I don't think you'd have to make many, if any, changes. No. Like, it's very, it's very current. But also the mechanics of filmmaking, right? Again, like, he's, maybe it's because he started his life as an editor, and, but it's all, you know, based on the idea of filming things. And I think, didn't he use the different film stocks to say that, you know, to show the different elements? But I think, yeah, even from the very beginning, he was interested in the formal elements and the way that cinema works. And I don't know, I just... I, that's that's what intrigues me. It is about a guy who films. Yeah. And yeah. that's... The reflexivity of that just amazes me. No. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> reveals it does... truth for fi filming things as exactly. well. Exactly, yeah. No, yeah. I, think, I think it's very telling you, and I think that, that point is, is well made. It's... Um... And it's kind of almost the uh, the Rosetta Stone for deciphering the rest of his career. Yeah. Mm. Um, I do like Kafka a lot. Uh, the film we made in 1991, but it does suffer from, you know, having come so soon after Brazil, which is mm. obviously a mm. huge influence on yes. him because he uses a pseudonym later on. He uses the... Uh, Sam Lowry. The Sam Lowry pseudonym la later on. So he's obviously a big fan. It's a big topic to take on, it right? Is, like, yeah. And it's so opaque and it's so hard to kind of get an angle on. And this is actually one of the ones that I couldn't get a handle on, so I'm super keen to see it. Mm. But it's it's just... I don't know, it's Kafka. Like, I'm sorry, you just have to say Kafka and people just roll their eyes and go, yeah. really? Really? <laughs> it's one of those things, though, he follows it up. You know, he's got this tiny little indie film that he shot in Baton Rouge and the next film's like, I want $15 million, Jeremy Irons and a bunch of huge name actors and we're going to Prague yeah. to make a Kafka movie that's shot in black and white and colour. Like, who does that? You gotta, you gotta give him props for ambition. Absolutely, oh, th that is going to be a continuing thing. Yes, giving props him props. For ambition. <laughs> and again, trying things in different, uh, again, taking on a mode of film. Yeah, you know, taking on German expressionism kind of yeah. looks and applying that here. And that's what he loves to do. And... He, he puts himself. He's like, let's do this. Let's let's take this experiment. Whether it's the the good German or yeah, even Kafka, I would say yeah. If mm. he's doing the German expressionist thing, the good German's going back to black and white. He shot it. You know, used only filmmaking. Mo modes available in the 1940s mm. and so you know he, he's someone who is a purist I suppose in that way 
And you can kind of see over these films, like his style eking out, you know, the Soderbergh that we know and love now. Looking back in retrospect, like every film sort of reveals a bit more, like it's an advent calendar. I mean, um, like King of the Hill in 1993, his use of zooms, he starts really getting into that. It's... That's bizarre. I was watching King of the Hill and it felt like a Depression-era kids movie directed by Brian De Palma. (laughs) (laughs) You know, these kind of, you know, that dual focus dioptic Mm. lens thing going on where the guy, you know, that super close-up is in focus and the guy behind is in focus. You've got Dutch tilts and zooms and crazy dolly shots. I was expecting... I was thinking surely there's going to be a split screen any second here. <laughs> but King of the Hills is a really nice little story too. I'd never seen it until until now. Like, way to just go to a completely different time and a completely different space. And that was that was one thing that did strike me about Soderbergh is the phenomenological, to use a big, long, stupid word, aspect of him, which he really does ground his films in a sense of place. Like, he's, mm. I think he said he doesn't like to use just sets because they're soulless and you don't, you have no touchstone. He says but he also hates establishing shots, which is interesting. Right. So he says that you should a city should reveal itself as the characters discover it. It shouldn't be right. a case of, you know, the audience gets like, okay, here's Prague, yep. and then go in. So yeah, and that's really you, interesting. You learn it by walking the streets. You of walk Prague the streets, with the and so he goes yeah, from Prague to Depression era America. Like yeah. fantastic. I, you know, maybe he's a history nerd. Maybe we need to have a <laughs> chat. <laughs> it's also the King of the Hill. Uh, inaugurates a very what is clearly a very special partnership with Soderbergh is that of uh, Spalding Gray. Oh yes, that's right. Yes, yes. And that was the thing he does. His collaborations are another touchstone of his career. I think. I mm. mean, obviously we've got George Clooney down the line, and um, Cliff Martinez. Martinez. His yeah, composers. He has a big relationship with his composers, like Cliff Martinez, David Holmes, Thomas Newman, mm. Marvin Hamblich. Like he really, there's something about his relationship with his composers. It's like he's got a team, and he knows which one is suitable for each mission. Yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. And apparently, he pretty much uses the same crew. Yeah. Well, his mm. first AD is always Gregory Jacobs. Uh, Paul Ledford has done most with sound editing. Um, and, of course, the uh, cinematographer and the editor are all uh, the same, aren't they? Well, yeah, Peter Andrews and Mary Ann Bernard. Uh, yes. Very <laughs> able professionals. Um, I'd like to see them on camera one day. I'm sure they'd be bald and in, wearing glasses. In the same room as, as <laughs> yeah. Steven Soderbergh. The joke being, dear listener, that they are all Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> he's his own cinematographer and editor. And he's been his own cinematographer since Traffic. Yes. Well, I'm a huge fan of 1995's Underneath which is a fantastic film noir based on what seems like a fantastic book with these really strong, like, eatable themes. And, and again, you see more of his style revealing himself. There are these colours, there are these strong tints. He starts playing with time. You, you know, it's, it's... That feels like the film that really begins to show you the Soderbergh we're going to see a lot of. Exactly. Over the next few years. Like the others, you can see signs, but underneath, like, puts it all on front street. It's like, whoa. It's very much the, the sign. But again, playing with form, right? Like, being, yeah. putting that to the forefront and just and saying, like, staking a claim, this is what I'm going to do. This is the form that I'm going to play with. Let's go. Yep. And you just, I think you just have to get on board. And I think that's what is so infectious about him is that he'll choose a style or he'll choose an experiment and he'll just go at it. Yeah. Mm. And even though I've, 
enjoyed every individual film up until this point. We still don't really know what a Steven Soderbergh film looks like. It's why, like, I almost see this as his his first five or six films are his origin story. <laughs> yeah. What they feel like, really, like they all feel so different as well. Maybe that's it. Maybe he is a bit of a chameleon up until this point. Well, it's, it's the benefit of hindsight that yeah. we know who he would later become, and so yeah. you look at his earlier films through that prism. You get the feeling, though, it's an artist trying to find what his identity is, mm. or maybe just following his interests. See, I I seem to think more like. We'll get on to Magic Mike, but I seem to think more he's an opportunist. He's just like, yep, cool, that story's good. That's that's great. Let's we've got the or team in, together. Let's go. Like, or in I the just, case of Haywire, I like this person. I like let's this build person. A film let's, exactly. Mm. exactly. Which shouldn't work, and as we will later discover, for most people does. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Probably for most people in the room, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> but the Spalding Gray relationship you mentioned before really comes to the fore in 1996's Gray's Anatomy. Uh, where he basically shoots a Spalding Gray monologue, but does it in such a unique style. It's not just a guy talking to the camera. He finds a way in. It's so dynamic. It is. I think after those three flops in a row too, I think he was really struggling at this point to get another film up. Mm. And this was an attempt to... Because he made these two indie films back-to-back for very little money and kind of working out some creative demons which is a point more obvious in the next one. 1996's Schizopolis, <laughs> an incredible experimental film that really, it's, it's, it's incredibly surreal. It's about identity and modernity and he plays the lead role. I know, I was going to say, this is him stepping in front of the camera. It's twice. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah. As, <laughs> it's funny because later on he works with non-actors and mm. he, he always says that you got you have to really know the person because you have to know how you can shoot them within their comfort zone and I love the fact that he steps in front and like plays two characters. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure he should give up his day job. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's got a rubber face though, I'll give him that. <laughs> it's a film about him considering giving up his day job, yeah, I think. Like it, he's, right? he's doubting his profession and he's doubt, questioning his life and he's... Like, I don't even know I fully understand it. And God knows I've tried. I've watched it three times. And I love it. <laughs> I feel it's a film he's just throwing so many ideas at the yeah, wall. Yeah, I just put this under sticks. hashtag reflexivity and just, <laughs> kind of, just kind of park it there and be like, Do you know what, I'm, I'll go back and I'll, yeah, maybe I should try it again. And just, but I found it a bit, I don't know, it was, mm. it was, it was, it was a tough one, but I just kind of went, Right, maybe I just need to know more or something. Some of it is hilarious. I, yeah. I felt like it was an in-joke that I wasn't quite in on. What an in, It's an interval. Mm. And it's an interval before he launches into Out of Sight in 1998. Which is where we discovered him, or where I discovered him. Yeah, no, where and I discovered him absolutely well. defines the Soderbergh style, mm-hmm. which we would follow from then on. Yes. It's fully formed, it's... I mean, Noiry, it's non-linear. It's, it's funny. Fun. It's, it's wry. It's sexy. And the Clooney collaboration. This is yes, where it begins. Hello. Well, you wonder if meeting Clooney and finding that what he must have considered to be a kindred spirit. Mm. You wonder if that was part of how the story came, came together. And it also kind of begins his fascination with square-jawed, flat-affected women which tends to go through <laughs> his career. Honestly, we will talk about them yeah. as they come up. Seriously, that is the Soderbergh woman, square-jawed, flat-affect. J-Lo has, has that in spades, but she also has a whole dose of cool and a whole dose of sexy. Yeah. Just how it's non-linear, mm. but it's non-linear 
in a way that is effortless. Yeah. And that it's, is so hard to do, right? And yeah. it just, I don't know. I just Not love... if you watch his films. It looks easy. It's yes. never frustrating. No. Like it's, it's just, everything seems to make, it seems to be told in a perfectly logical order. Yes. And, and I think that comes down to him being an editor and he lo- he talks about loving the edit and that's his happy place and that's what he wants to do and that's what he adores doing and that's the final that's the final cut of the of the screenplay as well and yep. you just feel like it's he's just such an assured editor that he can play with time like that yep. and just make it look like it ain't no thing Damn him. I, I, I have to say, this is by far, like I like Soderbergh, this is by far my favourite Soderbergh film and one of the sexiest films ever made. My God, that scene in between the scene in the back of the car and the scene yes. where she's waiting for the dates and then he just rocks up <gasps> yes. flicking the lighter with the snow falling down. Yes, oh, where they have that, they share the scotch or whatever. And yeah, you're just that like, whole seduction oh, scene. Yeah. So good. There are very few films in my life that I consider turning points, like where if I had to list the big things that happened to me in my life, there are a handful of films, not many, that would qualify. The Limey is one. The effect it had on me is almost indescribable. Can you describe it? Uh, <laughs> I, did, I did qualify it with almost, didn't I? Damn it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost when I had a kind of a revelation about uh, how aesthetics and how sound worked in relation to visuals and I had this huge, it was, I saw it while I was at film school and I had this huge moment of revelation, it was like the, the skies parting and then listened to the commentary and Soderbergh said everything I'd thought watching it and I felt so vindicated, wow. you know, and clever. But, <laughs> but the line, I, I, I'm still trying to identify what it is about the film that aside from that moment of revelation keeps me coming back and keeps me, like Terence Stamp as oh. a lead action man is just inspired and Peter, Peter Fonda is a villain. Like, yeah. oh. and there's and talking and about revenge, the non-linear. Like, let's go. Let's like here's a revenge story. Boom, let's go. And non-linear. Mm. I mean, that was the thing. They were stuck. Like they had shot it and and we had put it together chronologically. Mm. And he was stuck. He's like, this isn't working. Mm. And then apparently Cliff Martin has sent him a little ditty. He's like, this is just this little thing that I'm working on. And Soderbergh listened to it and said, that sounds like memory. Oh, and then wow. went back and just pulled out different images. And put them, kind of jumbled them up and put them in a different order and went, okay. Because he was really, really stuck. He admits to it. He was crapping himself. And then Cliff Martinez sent him that little ditty and that was it. I think one of the things I point to when I talk about why Steven Soderbergh is brilliant is 2000's Aaron Brockovich. And the reason I do is that a lot of people have... Uh, you know, accuse it of being a uh, a TV movie. Yeah, I've got to say, my opinion on it is it's the best TV movie ever made. Okay. Well, it sort of is. TV movie of the week ever made. But it yeah. exceeds the, those limitations. They're real emotions rather than um, button pushing. And I think that's the key difference for me between that and a standard TV weepy. Yeah, and it's a cracking story really well told. Yeah. That's another film that if it comes on TV, and maybe it's the movie of the week style aspect of it, but I will just, that's it. I'm stuck. Like, mm. I've just got to end up watching it. And, you know, yes, it's probably one of the best things Julia Roberts has done. Mm. Um, although she's not the square-jawed flat effect. She's got a lot of balls, that woman. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's a film, again, another sense of place. Like, Hinkley, I think you really do get a sense of that. And I love totally. what he's done with the colour grading there. It's all bleached out. But he, I don't know, I, yeah, it's, I've got a real soft spot for it. I, I hear a lot of haters, but, mm. no, I'm an Aaron Brockovich fan. Love it. Through and through. But I find that it's 2000, same year, Traffic, 2000's Traffic. It, have there been many other films that have been imitated this much? You know, we've talked about, you know, uh, Michael Bay and Tony Scott yeah. in the past. But 
my god, traffic. People are still trying to figure out how to remake that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Just insert industry here. It's yeah. traffic, but for oil. It's and no traffic, one's come close. Well, didn't he, didn't he get nominated for both Aaron Brockovich he and did. Traffic? He did. He beat himself for he, the yeah. Oscar. He That's won. how good he is. This is how good he is. Well, he made it so much his own thing. Totally. Like, and again, the mastery of the edit. Yeah. To be able to bring all of them, like multi-narrative. Again, not easy to do. He makes it look like... It's effortless. And the other thing is too, the like we take it for granted now, or the colour, like each story has its own colour scheme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had to go through so many experiments, some failed, mm. uh, with overexposing the film, with treating the film in certain ways. He couldn't just, you know, now we just chuck it into magic bullet and hit a button. <laughs> it's like, there you go. That's, that's, and now that's gray, yeah. blue and now that's yellow. With this, it was, yeah, it was through months of experimentation. And I've said many times before that we think we respond to subtlety, but look at how obvious and overt that the colour schemes are mm. and how evocative that is and yeah. how, much, how, how brilliant it is. And it's a film about the fact that there aren't any easy answers and, it's, and it bravely offers none. To, be, to play devil's advocate, people do find it cloying and, you know, a bit kind of didactic but then without giving answers and a, a bit obvious like he's gone for the obvious um pairings of people and it's like yeah it's a it's a bit too it's a bit too neat the way that it's all come together but do you know what i i mean i i can understand people seeing it that way but it's still a film that it just again it achieves something extraordinary um and makes it look so easy is there anyone else on the planet who could have made Ocean's Eleven? Who, <laughs> who could have taken what is a moderately okay-ish yeah. Rat Pack film with a, that actually has a good ending and t put all the biggest movie stars in the world in this one film and then do it that coolly in the biggest heist film ever? I really don't think anyone else could have done I this I just film. love that he gets off traffic and then just goes and just, do you know what? I'm just going to start making some money and I'm just going to start beating Hollywood at its own game yeah. and he just owns it. Like, you've got to give him props for that. <laughs> he goes from two films in the same year that were sort of, you know, both Gam Brockovich and Traffic were huge gambles and both paid off in massive fashion. So suddenly he's got... Something he's never known before. Two giant box office hits, yeah. an Academy Award, nominated for both, and both were both nominated for Best Picture. I'm pretty sure as well. Mm. And and then he went from there to like, now I'm just going to make the Hollywood movie. Yeah, I'm just going to show you guys. Like, yeah. I'm just going to own you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my indies have owned you. Now my blockbusters going to yeah. own you. I mean, just God, he's the man. But <laughs> like, you do, I and don't it's know. just it's so, so cool. damn cool that yeah. film, and so fun and. In 2002, he does the small uh, full frontal, the, the, mm. the character drama. the Another experiment. Yeah. And A him moving experiment. into digital. And apparently the actors with that one, they were told to show up in costume and in their makeup and that would define the arc of their characters. And so apparently David Duchovny showed up in like boxes yeah. and, and who was it? And yeah, yeah well, not going too far from Californication, like boxes and his Terry Telling robe or whatever. And then who was the other guy who showed up in the Nazi uniform? The so, Nicky Cat. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it, was a, it was a real crossover point between film and digital because it's both. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he did that, and yeah, obviously. Beautiful 35 and the I and love this film. Digital. Like, I know it gets a lot of crap. It's, it's considered well, it's a bad... What's closest than anything else yeah. that's come before. Well, yeah, and maybe that's why I respond to it. But mm. I've, I've watched it a lot of times and I really... I do struggle to see why people don't like it. I, I kind of pretend 
that I see. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. It, it doesn't work, but I like it. But I'm faking it. I don't get why people don't love this. But film. don't you love that he's stepped out of like owning Hollywood and then he makes that yeah. just to be like, do you know what? Here's Hollywood and here's the real life and everyone's a nightmare and no one gets on and it's all fake. But here's Hollywood and how shiny is Hollywood yeah. and look at all the conventions of Hollywood. I just love it. He just mm. completely undercuts them at their own game. Exactly. 2002, he remakes Tarkovsky's Solaris. Well, apparently, no, no, he doesn't call it a remake. He I calls agree. it a reinterpretation of the, the original text. Yes, yeah. Um, he doesn't want it to be compared with Tarkovsky. All right. Well, without getting in, in, into the uh, <laughs> academics of whether it's technically a remake or not, it's totally a remake. It and is. It has George Clooney, and it really works. He t- he's very he's interested in very different things to Tarkovsky. Yeah. And it's much more of a human drama. Yeah. But God, it's one that explores some pretty hefty issues in a very different way. I love would, this film. Mm. It's so elegiac and, and, and kind of moving and it's poetic almost. It's really, really great. And half the length of the other songs. <laughs> um, Don't you kind of feel, though, that if this is a film you have to give time and space and you just need, speaking of being in the right mood to watch mm. it, you need to be in the right mood and just let it wash over you because yeah. it's really a very special film. And technically... Really Gorgeous. interesting as well, like completely like perfect and precise and shiny and yes. Well, pausing briefly to acknowledge a film called Eros, he did a segment called Equilibrium, which is the best of the three segments, I think. Robert Downey Jr. as a 1950s ad man seeing Alan Arkin, his therapist. And it's so funny. In black and white. And it's Amazing. So that was another one. I didn't get to that. That just, oh my goodness. Well, I don't know it's so much fun. I don't think we've seen, yeah, it hasn't been released here. No. But it is so much fun. It's, it's, it's a great little It's film. really cheeky and, uh, and really snappy. And, so sidebar, see Eros. And working with another style again. But 2004 was also the year he made Ocean's 12. And I still remember the state of shock I had when I exited the cinema I was, I'd been looking forward to this film a lot and I love the first and it was, I mean, it's such a piecemeal script. It's adapted uh, from a film that wasn't meant to be an Ocean's film and you can see the edits on screen. You can see them desperately turning this character into two characters. It feels cobbled together. It doesn't work, but, and yet his direction is fantastic and there are some moments that work. See, and I have a theory about Ocean's 12 and it's a reason I've never been able to hate it. What's that? It's like, I think it's an okay film. I think it's Soderbergh messing with us again. I feel like, again, what does Soderbergh do every time someone sets up an expectation? He confounds it. This is an anti-sequel. This is almost a French New Wave attempt at a sequel. It's just like, I'm going to get the stars of the movie, lock them in a basement for half the film. All the side characters, they're going to save the day. All of a sudden, you know, bloody Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn are the lead. You know, it's like, and it's to, I'm going to have cameos where I get you know, huge actors in and then get them to do these really ridiculous things where they're playing themselves and and every turn I'm going to confound the audience. It's like everything you're expecting, I'm just going to explode. And Excuse I respect me, the state yeah. of mind that makes him want to do that. I, res- I, I like that. It just... The- Based purely on the end result, it just doesn't work and I've tried so hard. <laughs> I've tried to love this <laughs> I film. I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> 2005's Bubble. Now, this is a really powerful film with completely non-professional actors jumping straight into digital. Yeah, this was him. This was his partnership. Didn't he partner with uh, HDNet to yep. create three yes. films for the, on the red camera? And this was him just being like, "Yep, yoink, give me a red. Let me make a film. Make something. Yeah, Let's anything. go to yeah. Where we, where are we? Not in Oklahoma. Oh, is it Oklahoma? 
It's 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 middle America. Middle yeah, America. Wherever it is, you do get that strong sense of place again, though. Yeah, right. Mm. I love this film. I love the oppressiveness of it. I love the reality of it. There's only one. There's literally one shot in the film that pulls me out of its reality, and the rest of the film just feels so. Does that have authentic. anything to do with bare dolls' heads? No, I is actually, it? That was okay. Is I, it the ending? With yeah, with, ah, she's in the prison so, with the. With someone's yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I love that. I, I really? do love that shot, and I love that. I it kind of enhances the realism beforehand for me. Yeah, but I, I like that he is brave enough to make that film, and then brave enough to almost undo it with a final oh. shot like that. Mm. It's a bit of a wink at the audience that final shot. Yeah, and yeah. I guess that kind of bothered me on this occasion. Whereas okay. at other times, I'd be more with it because I guess I was so immersed in the reality of the whole thing. But again, like way to way to confound expectations. Yeah. Come off oceans and go and make. Bubble. Like you just you can't even put yeah. them in the same universe, and yet somehow with Soderbergh, there's a through line. You can see yeah. what he's trying to do, and again, he's going to do an experiment, and he's going to go there, and he's going to achieve it. Just like he comes off Bubble and makes a throwback to Casablanca and the Third Man. Oh my goodness! What was it now? His whole idea was is like, what if Michael Curtis could have done whatever he wanted? Like, what if he yeah. had no Hayes code? Swearing yeah, 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 yeah. To me, it's what if David Mamet wrote Casablanca. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like yeah. That, yeah. I like it. Even in its view of masculinity and women, and it's just, it's, it's a really good film. It's such an underrated film. Oh, it's a, it's just exquisite. It's such a treat. And oh my gosh, you know, Kate Blanchett doing Marlena Dietrich is yeah. just <laughs> a sight to see. But then some redemption, a little bit of redemption to make up for Ocean's 12. <laughs> he makes Ocean's 13, which I think. To me, I think it's a little overpraised by not being as bad as 12. Or not, by being significantly better than 12. Yeah. I think it's a really good film, but to me it feels like an episode of the Ocean's TV series. It feels a bit phoned in to me, to be honest. A little phoned I think it's in. really entertaining. And yeah. I mean, look, the whole film's just worth it to see Clooney and Pacino square off. Yeah. But right. whereas the first, first one feels, feels like a, a movie. That feels like an actual yeah. film. Yeah, and it feels, like, feels like something... Like part it, three. Yeah. You know. Che parts one and two. Yes. Uh, the Che Guevara film split into two. The Argentine and Gorilla. Gorilla. Yes. Um, the icon and the man. The hero and the failure. His heart, as much as I like this film, his heart does not seem in it. I mean... Really? That's interesting. To me, it, uh, yeah. It, God, it I doesn't... think he puts himself on the line. Like, I just yeah. love the way he separates the two films. I love the way they're shot in different styles. I love the way they're coloured differently. Mm. Um, and, of course, he's received a bit of pushback for not kind of going into the Congo and brushing over a whole bit of not the best history. Well, that sure. was my bugbear with it. Oh, really? It's like it, showed, it was pretty much, hey, Shea was selective. a really great guy. I, I don't and think it was like that it sentimental. Really... Like, I think it was just, here are some things he did, you make up your mind. And while See, it I think did... it was more like, here is a lot of awesome things he did. The well, that's other the first stuff, part. Not, Second part yeah. is, him, is, is him failing yeah. quite royally. Like, that's but why still I... failing by almost being too, it's like, Part two is like, you know when you go to a job interview and you and those people ask, so what are your faults? And people go, I'm too goal-oriented. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what Shane part two is to me. It's like, I'm too committed to the cause and nobody will go with me. Now, a lot of films have been given this title, but I think... This is truly the one that's earned it. I think 2009's The Girlfriend Experience is the first post-GFC film. Yes. Well, yeah. because they were actually shooting it and the GFC kind of fell down around their ears, right? And then yeah. they just went and added that whole bit to the story. Really? Yeah, I, I thought the GFC was happening and he was like, right, he was let's re grab a responding to it. Yeah, yeah, but I think the story, I think the story did take 
a left turn because of that. I yep. think, yeah. But it's already, I mean, and the film fundamentally is about the relationship between, you know, money and human interaction. And the hustle. Like, how good is the hustle in this film? Like, just the fact that she's kind of hustling but in a completely different way from mm. the boyfriend who's mm. hustling and just, oh. Everyone's out for something. And everyone's out and for something. Every, everyone's a commodity. The most chronically disjointed of his films, I would say. I think that this is certainly a contender. For... Really? I don't know. See, I quite liked the edit. I, the, his referential edits in this film I found really intriguing. So it mm. would be there'd be a look or there'd be a note, like there'd be a word, and then that would reference something sure. else that yeah, he yeah, cut yeah. to. Like it was all, it's all ties together very, very well. And that final moment of intimacy is just so powerful. And here is a square-jawed, flat-affected <laughs> yeah. woman in Sasha Grey. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I found this film, this is almost my least favourite of his films. I just found it so chilly I needed a jacket. Um, I found it really hard to find a way in. I, yeah, I found this in this case the elliptical structure quite off-putting. I could see what it was saying, but I, it seemed to be a lot of speech. It's kind of it actually feels a lot like Cosmopolis, but less witty. He's definitely got a lot to say. I think it's a, honestly, I think it's a film I really need to revisit. Yes, sure. I would. I would definitely say revisit it. 2009's The Informant. Oh my I god! I love this film. Truth is stranger than fiction. How cool is the unreliable narrator? Like, yeah. let's, let's have this guy telling us any in any moment of exposition, let's have him just kind of dawdle off into his own flights of fancy. <laughs> but I love that the score in particular is uh, is like almost like what's going through Whitaker's head because yes. he thinks he's in a 70s action film. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it's like a 70s like Carl Reiner comedy or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it smashes into the 90s with some absolutely atrocious ties and the taupe, like the colour, the use of colour in this film is fantastic. Like all the taupe walls and the oh way this film goodness. reveals itself is just amazing. Like yeah. that's, it's like, it's like watching a man being taken apart brick by brick. Yeah. It's so good and so funny. And Matt Damon's amazing. <laughs> it's one of my favourite Matt Damon performances actually. And in 2010, another Spalding Grey film, this time posthumous, and did what Senna would be praised for the year after, which is just making up completely of archive footage. God, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's such a beautiful I take away film. some credit from Senna. No, <laughs> <laughs> give it to Soderbergh. Yeah, and even better than than Grey's Anatomy for me. Anyway. Oh, really? I think yeah, for me. Then the next year, he came to Sydney to direct a play called Tot Mom, and he made a film during rehearsals with the actors called The Last Time I Saw Michael Gregg, which has never been released or shown to the public. I know. It's I just to made for the it. cast. Yeah, it's at Soderbergh's house. He's shown it just to the cast and, yeah, I don't think we'll ever see it. I've seen it. I can't tell you how. No, you haven't. Oh, I can't Dickity. tell you how. What the f... What? You Shut never told me this. <laughs> so I've looked around the web and I'm pretty sure that nobody has talked about this anywhere yet. Uh, this is, I think, a world exclusive uh, which does put a bit of you know pressure on, but also it was never meant to be seen by anyone outside of the cast and crew. Like people like us were never meant to, you know, review it, and so, and so it does have to be looked at with that in mind. Um, it's it's very much an improvised comedy. You know, the cast improvised most of it, and you know it's basically just Soderbergh shooting it on a digital camera, and. Um, it's, it's got an interesting structure. It's a lot like, believe it or not, Memento. Uh, even though it's a comedy, it's kind of, it, it, it starts at the end and it goes backwards, which is a very compelling structure and it really commands your attention because you're watching a lot of, uh, setups and, and payoffs to jokes that are happening in completely the wrong order. And what's funny about them is different to, to if it was told in a more, uh, straightforward, linear 
fashion. So, so it's really interesting from, from that perspective. Stylistically, it's a lot like the Nikki Cat scenes in Full Frontal. It's very broad uh, comedy and very funny. And when I say broad, I'm not kidding. Like there are fart jokes in this thing, I swear <laughs> to God. Ultimately, it's a very, very funny lo-fi film and I totally get why they don't want to, you know, put it out there, release it to the public. But I really hope that more people get the chance to see it in the future because it is, it is really, really good and I had so much fun with it. Whoa. Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. So from world exclusives... <laughs> To contagion, to world viruses. To world viruses, Contagion yes. is next, isn't it? It is, and, and not to go suddenly to a downer, but this is actually my least favourite Soderbergh film, and I don't think it's his worst. It's just the one where I have... It, it doesn't grab me, it doesn't feel like his his heart's really in it. And yeah, I've got to say, this feels really detached it's, to it's, me. It it's feels done by Rose, and, and as, it's not bad, but I do think it's very telling that it was around the time this film came out that he repeated what he'd suggested earlier, which is that he was going to retire. And I think, I don't think that's a coincidence. See, for me, this is him auditioning for long-form TV, which is what he wants to do, because this should have been a show. This should have been a TV yeah, series. Sure, should have yeah. been a miniseries. And it's actually, he said that there was an hour that he's, it's fully edited hour that he cut out. Wow. Yeah, I suppose maybe he was so, so enamoured of the realism that mm. he forgot the entertainment. But then 2012's Haywire, the criminally underseen Yeah. Oh, my film. gosh. It's um, so much fun. It's a retro spy movie. It's, yeah. He has actually said it's a kind of counterpoint to the Limey because it's the chick's revenge film. Yeah. yeah. And it almost feels like he's kind of auditioned. Well, he was thinking of doing Man From U.N.C.L.E. at one point, and you're almost like he's done it with this and he kind of got it out of his system. And but he's sort of done it because he became he saw Gina Carano. On, he was just watching TV. And yeah. He flicked over and she was there, and then he saw her interviewed and realized she wasn't a freak, and then just went, "Hey, th this would kind of be cool. Let's build totally, a film. Let's build a film person. around her." And it hits all those Soderberghian New Hollywood aesthetic sweet spots that I just yeah. love about his best films, and it's just. Oh, and again, I and talking it. about experiments, he wanted to do an action film. And yeah. he's like, hey, cool, let's stage some action. And he went and watched all these action films and then realised the way that he wanted to choreograph and the way that he wanted to shoot things. And I just love it. He's and it's like, so, so kind of real, you yeah. know, like it's how fights would occur, you know. And that's it. And that's why there's no music because he said he hates the feeling that you've got to feel something because there's this pumping music over a fight scene. He's like, no, no. But then his most recent film to date, an art film to me disguised as a blockbuster, making that claim, Magic Mike, but he gives us so much empathy and style and grace and humour. It's just superb. It should not be half as good as it is. And yet <laughs> has made a ton of money from that crowd that it's yes. been pitched to. It's his third yeah. most successful film so Well, there far. you go. Maybe that's him undercutting Hollywood again. It's like, do you know what? Here's a Hollywood, like, supposed to be mindless guy, let's go drool over guys, and then there's actually a whole lot of smarts to it. And there's a whole lot of empathy. Yeah. And there's another flat affected square jawed woman in it. Yes. And she kind of annoys me a little bit. But other than that, but I like that scene where they're walking on the beach and they just he just tracks them along. Yeah. So much heart in that scene. I thought Magic Mike was a more accessible and cogent comment on the global financial crisis yes. and girlfriend experience. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Definitely, there's definitely a post or a GFC bent to it, like the whole idea of, of the non-union workers and just him trying to kind of get a loan and, and him trying, trying to pick himself doing, up. 
everything right yeah. and not getting the and loan getting and eventually down. having because capitalism demands more it demands your body it demands your soul yes and that's what he has to give when I came out of Magic Mike I was talking to Hell is for Hyphenates an alumnus Mark Fennell who also loves Soderbergh and I was a little annoyed because I've spent years trying to figure out why I love him so much and Mark summed it up in one sentence he says it, he makes you feel like you're in the moment at all times that's the one right. thing that's across all of his films. Nicely said, Mark. And it's what you were saying before about he doesn't have establishing shots because he wants you to feel what the characters are feeling. Mm. And that's it. And it's almost like his entire aesthetic is built around this odd point of view that puts you in the moment, even though it's so stylish and so odd. So before this much-touted retirement that, God, I... Is he going to do it? I don't know. He's got two films coming out next year, The Bitter Pill, also with Channing Tatum, and Behind the Candelabra, the Liberace biopic, which I'm dying to see. <laughs> Michael Douglas's Liberace. Oh, what a note to it. go out of, though. Liberace. Like, come on. But, yeah, <laughs> you're going to take a bow. So if you're going to take a bow, take a Liberace. <laughs> Naturally. Well, Alice, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks, heaps. And we'll see the rest of you next month. I see a lot of lawbreakers in here. 